I want to just say before I start my sermon that when we were, when you were singing, when we were singing, I surrender all, it was like the Holy Spirit was almost visible in this place. I want you to know that God heard that, that he was pleased, that he's going to help you live that out. Just thought that had to be said. So um, I've been moving among the students coming in, like Jessica has, and she talked about the U-Hauls. I've been noticing how many newlyweds there are. I met a couple who moved in like three weeks ago, went and got married, had a tiny honeymoon, and came back. That's great. So how many of you are like married within the last six months? Oh my goodness, I see like at least ten. The Lord be with you. you we, have a, we have a counseling program that we can refer you. I want to say that the only good marriage is the one that's been worked on. So going to a marriage counselor or getting help is not a shameful thing. It's because you're going to succeed. I just throw that out there. Now, um, I don't know if you still do this. Many, we should maybe ask all the grooms. I thought there was mostly all men in here who put their hands up. But when I was married in 1974, the groom carried the bride across the threshold of their house. Did any of you grooms do that? Stand up so we can just see how you did. Oh, okay, we got like five of them. So actually, I think that has very pagan roots. Just want to say. Um, it's actually supposed to like keep the demons out of your house and keep your bride from being kidnapped and good luck and all that kind of stuff. But you know, it's kind of sweet. And we do other things that are pagan. So we're okay with that. Um, so in 1974, my husband swept me up and carried me across the threshold of our house. And when we moved into this house 16 years ago, okay, calculating, uh, I said to him, are you going to carry me across the threshold? And he paused and he said, sure, if I can make two trips. <laughs> so I'm assuming that's because he's much weaker, not because I'm a little bigger. But let me say this, that some couples, when they cross through the door of their first home, they are crossing a threshold, and they will never be the same again. All of life has changed. But some couples, when they get married and they cross the door into their new home, have just gone through the door. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about thresholds. Now, in all of our lives, we're invited to cross thresholds. But we can easily miss them. In fact, we don't even, I don't hear anyone hardly ever talking about this. So I'm just trying to put this into your mind as an awareness. And it links very much to that hymn we sang, I Surrender All. Uh, when you cross a threshold, you are changed. A threshold isn't simply a transition. It isn't simply a move. When you cross a threshold, you are changed, and you can't go back. But even so, some of them are pretty ordinary, and we don't see them, and we don't pay attention to them. For instance, the day you got your driver's license, was that not a threshold? The whole world opened up to you. For some people, that began a path that actually will lead to their death. That's an interesting thought. For others, it opens up a path that leads them to all kinds of vistas and all kinds of freedom. The first time we drank alcohol, was that not a threshold? You break the threshold, and then you are never the same. Whatever happens to that, you are not the same. 
How about walking back through the front door of our house after we've buried our mom? Is that not a threshold? We have to live a few years to slowly find out all we've lost. But it's a real threshold. It's never the same again. Or maybe walking back into a classroom for the first time after 20 years. Out. Anybody here done that this semester? It was one of the first times I saw my husband cry, except for when we married, uh, had our children. He came home after about five days, and he's, he was in a an, uh, Dr. Oswald's class, and he sat down and he started to cry, and he said, I don't think I can do this. <laughs> but he did it, so you know, this is, it's just a threshold. I mean, something's gonna change. So mostly we don't notice the thresholds we cross, and I think that if we don't notice them, they have maybe less significance in our life. Um, but I want to suggest to you that if you choose to consciously cooperate with God in what he's doing in your life, that these thresholds can become powerful moments of transformation. A threshold, then, is more than a door. It's a passage into a new reality. And it's a passage, if you take it, through which you cannot return. You can go back, but you can't go back to what you were because something has so profoundly changed. Uh, a threshold involves a very defined season. It has a beginning and it has an end. It isn't your whole life. It is a very distinct season. And it is really a liminal space. That is space that's not in the center of your normal life. It's kind of space on the edges outside of normal life where there's something has room to move and things shift in us. During that time, there are experiences that happen in our life where if we co consciously cooperate with them, God can use them to do a deep work in our soul, even to the point of changing our identity and changing our character. And the purpose is so that in the next season of life, we don't just go into different work, we go in as a different person. I remember we've been in three churches over 38 years, and after leaving our first church, which had grown to be about 400 people, we were going into the city, and the district superintendent said to my husband in my presence, are you ready to grow? Are you prepared to learn how to do your work better? Are you prepared to learn how to work faster and smarter? Because it, he had to be a different person to take on the different job, the different uh, challenge. So I'm suggesting today that your season in seminary might be a threshold and not just an education. Hold on to that thought. Our scripture today is going to focus on a liminal season in Jesus' life, which became a threshold, preparing him to embrace an entirely new way of living, and from which he could not return. It was a liminal season that moved him from a private, peaceful life to a public life marked by conflict almost every day. It was a threshold that moved him from a career as a carpenter where he could plan his days, organize his tasks, very concrete, sequential, do the next thing and feel a sense of accomplishment, to being a traveling rabbi who was met by what happened in the day. It was a threshold that moved him from anonymity and obscurity, flying under the radar, which is really not a bad place to be. For those of you that long for prestige, enjoy your time under the radar from being under the radar to being a pop, having popularity as an opinion maker 
And as you know, if you're an opinion maker, people have many opinions about you. It was a threshold that moved him from an identity under question as a village boy who did not have really a very dignified beginning to an identity as the Son of God and Messiah. What must happen in a person to move them from that in life to that life? There has to be a threshold experience. Listen to the story as it's told by our students from Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him. I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. It is written, Man should not live on bread alone, but on every word from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. It is also written, you shall not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. This is the word of God for the people of God. This is one of the most rich theological passages in any gospel, and we're going to do honor to that. But mostly I've been reflecting on this passage from this lens of the formation of Jesus as he moved from the village boy to a life as the, the called one, the son of God. And I want to use this experience of Jesus as a lens into your seminary experience, if you may. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and as he fitted wood for a local project, a stirring began in his soul. And an eternal calling began to rise up within him. A threshold season had begun, and he responded. Following those stirrings, Jesus made a move out of his village toward Galilee and the Jordan River, where he knew a spiritual movement was unfolding. Just track this in your mind, picture it like a young man. This was not a random chance. Matthew 3 says that he approached the River Jordan with the intention of stepping into the water and being baptized by John. A beautiful dialogue here occurs between John and Jesus as they juggle with power. Who baptizes who? 
What's the right thing to do? And Jesus finally concludes the conversation by saying, no, John, we're going to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Hold on to that thought. And John baptizes Jesus. In receiving the sinner's baptism, Jesus begins to symbolically take on the sins of the world. And we begin to see his identity changing here. As Jesus rises from the waters of baptism, the heavens open, and one of the clearest pictures of the Trinity is, is presented to us. The Trinity in perfect communion, perfect sharing, perfect love, on the same task, the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus in a form like a dove. Jesus, who has just begun to take on the sins of the world. And a voice from heaven calling out, ah, this one, I know this one in the baptism. This one is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. From this profound experience of affirmation, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit. Don't miss that, and we've made much of that. But he is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, the, I want to just say briefly, the Father and the Spirit do not tempt. But in some, for some reason, the Father allows us to become weakened and to be tempted. And he let Jesus become weakened and profoundly tempted. This pattern of God leading those he loves, those who will serve into the wilderness, those who are called for his purposes, is repeated through scriptures. There is no journey to Mount Horeb, the Mount of God, that does not go through the wilderness. Think about that. There is no journey to the Mount of God that does not go through the wilderness. Buddha says, I know nothing but suffering, and my purpose is the end of suffering. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but don't be afraid, because I am with you and I have overcome the world. So stepping into the call includes in some way stepping into the threshold of the wilderness training. Now much has been said about the temptations of Christ in the wilderness, and um, I'm not going to go into them right now, but I want to point out that the temptations were all external, and Jesus moved them into something internal. And I want to suggest that the journey through the wilderness is a journey from the external, the motivations that are external, to the motivations and to a life directed from the inside. That is one of the profound things that happens in the, in the wilderness. So Jesus goes through this time of deep weakening. He is tempted. He responds with scripture and with truth. And then this one sentence, he's ministered to by angels. What on earth? That little sentence, I mean, we fly by that sentence. That, you could meditate on that. Just think about it. He was ministered to by angels. Have you been ministered to by angels? I mean, real angels? I don't know. That's like astounding. So from this liminal season abounding with intense formation that we've just bounced off of, Jesus crosses into the threshold into active ministry, and he never looks back. So let's move and talk about where we are today. One day in your life, a stirring rose in your heart. And that stirring had been on your life since before you were born, before you were even imagined, before your father imagined 
had a twinkle in his eye. You had been imagined by God. And that eternal stirring was already on your life. It was your calling. And at some point, that stirring began to rise in you. Some of us resisted it. Some of us pushed it away. But the stirring of God does not go away. It just makes you miserable. And it keeps coming back. At some point, you responded, or you wouldn't be sitting here. And when you responded, you began to move into change. You began to approach a threshold. A threshold is not an amorphous time. If you are in a threshold, you know when it started and you know where it ended. This happened, and I was changed. And what happens can be a number of things, but it has a beginning and an end. But when that, when you began to step into this threshold experience that brought you to sit in this pew today, you moved. You moved from Nazareth to Galilee. You moved from somewhere that you knew as home, somewhere that was your life, and you moved into a place where you knew the Spirit of God was moving. You had heard there was a movement there. There was something had happened in you. Now here we have a saying, and we say it with a wry smile on our face. It's called the Asbury experience. How many of you have heard that phrase? How many of you know what it is from experience? Okay, let me tip you off. The Asbury experience is the experience of transformation that comes through agony. It means that things press on you and things press on your mind and they press on your heart. It's as if when you came to seminary, God took you seriously. And he said, oh, you said, I'm going to be prepared for ministry. And he said, do you have any idea what that means? <laughs> okay, I will be with you. And you began it. Things happen here. Things seem to happen here at a rate that's faster than the regular kind of change. There's an intensity in the um, transformation process here. So when I'm reflecting on Jesus' story, I see several things that happen, and I think the things that happen to us that create the Asbury experience or a deeper experience of sanctification or preparation for ministry, I think they happen in the category of these three or four things that happen to Jesus. The first thing is this. Think about this now in, your, in light of your experience of, of uh, seminary. Jesus came intent on fulfilling all righteousness. You may struggle with having the humility to fulfill all righteousness. It comes as a surprise to all of us when we find suddenly that we have come face to face with our own divided heart, demanding as it will that things go the way we think they should go. And you will do a lot of things here that don't go the way you think they should go. You will have deadlines that you think are unreasonable. You will have um, projects that you think are busy work. You will have an ethos that you only half agree with. You will have things that happen that you have to do. And you will say, that's stupid. I don't have to do that. But there's something in the fulfilling of all righteousness that changes us. There's something about surrendering our will. We live in a world where you pretty much get to do whatever you want. You've pretty much come to Asbury having been able to do whatever you want. Okay, so things are going to change. Maybe when you saw your syllabus, a prayer rose in you. And you thought, I do not want to fulfill all righteousness. 
it's surprising how, how often the things that get to us are the smaller things. They're not the bigger things. And sometimes it will be God calling you to do something completely against all your common sense. In our first stint of school, we were so poor. It was really a great, you know, when it's over, it's like, what a great time. You know, it, was, it wasn't really that great as we went through it. But I, I remember once, in our denomination, we have a missions pledge. And Steve um, came to me and said, I think we should pledge $500. Our yearly income was less than $500. And we didn't use credit, and we were trying to pay off our school. And I was like, livid, because I'm the one running. He said, no, I'm gonna, we're going to give five. God has told me we need to do, uh, pledge $500 to missions. And what I've told the Lord is, I will give him half of everything that he brings into the house. Do you know that in three weeks we had paid off that pledge? And Steve said to me, I should have pledged more. Because <laughs> God gave us the same blessing that we gave him, right? So there are these stirrings in our heart. And, you know, Lamentations 3.27 says, you could preach on this, this would be an interesting one. It's good for a young man to bear the yoke while he is young. You know what? It's good for you to have to fulfill all righteousness. It's part of the kingdom calling, the kingdom calling. Did you think that when you came to follow God that you still possessed your own life? I surrender all. What does that mean? Sometimes it means fulfilling righteousness. The stupid, small thing you don't think is reasonable. Secondly, you are going to have experiences and encounters that reshape your identity. And I want to tell you that reshaping your identity usually comes, often comes, through the reshaping of your image of God. Who we think God to be says very much about who we think we, we are. And some of this is bringing the head and the heart together. Many of us have a head knowledge of who God is. God is love. God is forgiving. But our heart knowledge says, but it's not for me, or it's not for that thing. Uh, when I was a young woman, I went to a spiritual director to talk about my inner conflict. I had really great theology, but I just felt so worthless. I felt so like I just couldn't get on top of things. I was depressed. And her word to me after listening to me for an hour was, Marilyn, your gods need to have a conversation with each other. And I would suggest that in this room, some of your gods need to have a conversation with each other. The movement of formation is the movement from faith to trust. Do I trust God? I believe in God. Do I trust God? Do I believe he's with me? Do I believe there's redemption after this event? Do I believe that he's with me in the dark when I can't see him? Security in the Father's love is foundational to you being prepared for ministry. Because one day you'll be lying in bed, alone or with your spouse, and you will say, all we have left is God. And if you don't have God, then you're really in trouble. We are going to fulfill all righteousness. We are going to have encounters that change our identity. And my friends, you will spend time in the wilderness. Temptations include wrestling with the flesh and the devil. Am I going to keep using porn? Am I going to keep gossiping? Am I going to cheat? 
but sometimes they come in more rarefied forms. Like really and truly, I can't be, I can't be tempted by lust. Like the most handsome of you who walk by me, I'm not lusting after you, just saying. I'm like done with that. That's the first half of life struggle, for me anyways. But the enemy can come to me as the angel of light and say, has God, has God really said, is, this, is that really part of your calling? There are ways that temptations come to us that can slay us. Satan won't waste temptations on you that you've conquered. He has new stuff for you here. And some of it will be, worst of all, to come in the form of a felt absence of the presence of God. That is like to the one who is seeking hard. That is the worst pain. The issue of suffering is a mystery. I can't even begin to go into it now. But I heard this poem once. It's an, I've tried to find the author. It's anonymous. But I heard it quoted by Ravi Zacharias years and years ago. You've probably heard it too. But just listen to this. And I apologize for the male gender. It's not gender neutral. But it has to rhyme. So I couldn't change it. Anyways. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when God yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world will be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects those he royally elects, how he hammers and he hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God can understand. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How God bends but never breaks when God's good he undertakes. When, how he uses whom, whom he chooses, and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try God's splendor out. God knows what he's about. I don't understand that. But I have been there, and you have been there too, while you lift beseeching hands and think, will he crush me? Isaiah 45 says, I will give you the treasures of the darkness. The wilderness is a place, the darkness is a place where you will receive things that you cannot receive at any other point in your life. And you will never want to go back through that again, but you will treasure what came out of it. That is the work of God. What happens, one thing that happens in the wilderness that I mentioned before, is that your inner navigation system becomes so refined that you are unfazed by the challenges or the uncharted territory that God is going to lead you into. You must have that inner navigation. You must move from listening to the external voice of the church or even your parents and have it replaced by a conscience that's guided by the Holy Spirit. Because the church will mislead you. And the voice of your parents can keep you down or falsely take you up. We must learn to listen to the inner voice. You will find that you have discipline to do hard work. We have to be able to do hard work. We have to be able to face tough challenges. You will find that you can defer instant gratification and begin to invest in long-term purposes. But you cannot do that if you are soft. Think about your own life. How much do you defer instant gratification right now? Think about what is it? 
that you go to so fast. You have to get to the place where you don't go to that so that you can invest in the long haul, the long journey. For you to become a trustworthy community builder, you have to learn that if you get power, it's not for you to use on your own behalf. You are not safe in the community with power until you know that the power is for the sake of those who have none, period. And those are the things that happen in the wilderness. More than all that, you learn to hear the voice of God. And then, lastly, you will be ministered to by angels here. So have you ever been ministered to by angels? I actually think that I maybe was once. So I, last night Steve and I started talking about our life and I dared myself to tell you this story. Okay, so we're just done our first stint of school. We've been in school like five or six times between the two of us. And we went to school, we were new believers in a church and they sent us to their, the Alliance School, which was in Regina, Saskatchewan, in the middle of the prairies where you have incredibly cold all winter, boiling hot all summer, um, mosquitoes as big as you know birds, and all kinds of problems. <laughs> so we were about to graduate. We had had three years of school, and in those three years, Steve went full time. He worked as many hours as he could in a grocery store. We pastored a church a week on the weekends about 40 miles away, and I ran our home on nothing. Literally, I had a friend from Georgia who helped me find out how to live. She got Steve hunting, so we would butcher a deer on our ping pong table in the basement every, every year, and then we would eat it. We're two city kids, right? If it was a big piece of meat that came off, it was a roast. If it was a little piece, it was, I mean, it was pitiful. We were just like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, found a, I found a, a chicken farm, a professional chicken farm, and they would sell me 17 dozen cracked eggs for $3. So Judy Rollins, my friend, and I would go every so often, get 17 dozen cracked eggs. We'd throw away the clearly broken ones and hope we didn't get salmonella from all the rest. We ate a lot of eggs. Judy and I, we plucked chickens from the Hutterites. The Hutterites had hens that laid eggs, and then they would give us 20 chickens, and if we plucked them in our kitchen, these were the old laying hens, they would give each of us two. And Judy said to me, don't worry about it, they're really tough, but what you do is you uh, boil them first this long, and then you bake them and put lots of sauce on them. The first time I boiled one of those chickens, all this gray foam rose to the top of my pot, and I was really afraid. And so my daughter was five. I wrote down a phone number, and I said, Rachel, you know how to use the phone, right? She goes, yes. I said, okay, mommy's gonna eat some chicken, and if I, <laughs> if you see that mommy's really sick, I want you to phone this number and tell them you need help. I actually did that, because I, I couldn't feed my family that chicken before I tested it. So I ate some chicken. It was fine, we were, we were okay. So this is how we lived through. We didn't use credit, and we had no money, and um, we had a little dish on the fridge that we decided that we would never be at the end of money. We would never spend ourselves down to nothing. So we had a bowl on the fridge that had at least a dollar in it at all times, because that was enough to get children's Tylenol, or to get a quart of milk or a crisis. Like, that was our security, was $1.37 on the fridge. So this is how we'd gotten through school. And we had, we had leaned hard on God, and he'd done so many things for us. And I mean, we came in as literally pagans. 
And we left three years later having been through a threshold. Anyways, it was spring now. We're going to graduate in a month. And Steve's at work, and I am with the kids. We live in a house, a Regina housing house. Um, it's sort of in the bad part of town. Beside us is a field that right now is melting snow and ice and slush and brown. About three blocks behind us is a mall, a kind of burnt out mall that has four or five stores still open in it. And every day I took my kids out somewhere because I'm a proactive mother and so we'd go out for a walk. And this day was no different. I was about to take the kids out for a walk. But I was again in a crisis in my own soul. And my crisis was this. Almost everyone in our class had been called to a church. We, do, we, don't, we aren't assigned, we go and we sort of date. And if they like you, they call you and that kind of thing. So we, had, we hadn't been called to a church. We weren't exactly the cream of the crop, so you know, it wasn't surprising. But everyone else we knew had been called, and I was really struggling, like, God, are you really with us? Is this, do you care about the things I care about? Like, I was so convinced God cared about the lost, he cared about the world. Did he care about my kids? Did he care that I hadn't had anything new for three years? Did he care about, you know, that we didn't have a church? And this day, I, was, I decided, um, this is how the day unfolded. I was going to take the kids out, and I was going to walk them to the mall, which is what I usually did. And I, I was thinking about dinner, and I thought, okay, we don't have any bread in the house. I could buy some bread while I'm out, but that would spend our dollar thirty-seven. So it's fine. I have flour. I can make pancakes. Well, pancakes and eggs for supper. We always had eggs. So I, I was, this was not a big deal to me. I was just my calculations of the day. And I went for a walk with my kids, who were three and five. So we got to the little mall, and, and we had worn our winter coats, because it was still spring, but that means winter in Canada. And um, I got a shopping cart, and I put all the coats in the shopping cart, and put three-year-old Ben in on the coats. And Rachel and I walked through all the stores that were open which weren't many, and she jumped around. And, um, and, and then when I was ready to go home, Ben had fallen asleep in the cart, you know, two or three years old. And I, I thought, oh, I don't want to um, wake him up. I'll just sit here for a while. So you know those square cement things that are in malls that you can sit on? They have a tree in the middle. This one didn't have a tree, but it had the cement, you know. So I just sat there with Ben asleep in my cart, and Rachel was singing and running around the square. And I just thought, I'll let Ben sleep for 15 minutes, because when I wake him, that'll be the end of his nap. After I sat down, I became aware of the fact that about three stores down, there was a bakery. And the smell of bread was incredible, like this beautiful smell of fresh bread, you know. And I, my mouth was watering, and I, you know, I was just aware of that. And I was watching Rachel, and we were laughing. We were not looking pitiful at all. I noticed out of the corner of my eye that out of the bakery came this man. I can still completely picture him. He wasn't tall, very average man, about 40. I was like 25, 24. Still very cute, I must say. <laughs> yes. So I didn't actually ever flirt. I had committed myself. I never flirted, so I didn't look at him. And he came out. He had a nice, like, sort of bomber jacket, the jacket that comes to your waist, it's kind of brown leather, and ordinary hair. And Instead of, he came out of the um, bakery and started walking down toward us, and I just looked the other way because I'm not going to make eye contact with a strange man. But he walked right toward me. Till, here's the scenario. I'm sitting on that piece of cement. Rachel's running around singing. Ben's in front of me, and the man is right beside Ben. He reaches into his bag, 
for years I couldn't tell this without crying. He reaches into his bag and he pulls out a hot loaf of buttertop, crunchy, fabulous, most expensive bread. And he puts it in the buggy beside Ben. My, my heart starts pounding like this. And I'm like, what is going on? What is going on? What is going on? And I don't look at him. And then he, it's all very quiet. It's very calm, very slow. Then he reaches in his bag. He takes out another loaf of buttertop bread. And he puts it in the buggy beside Ben. And then he starts to walk off. And with all the graciousness I could muster, I called up. He was about 10 feet away. I said, why did you do that? And he turned back, and he looked at me, and he smiled. His face was just illuminated. He smiled so beautifully. And then he walked into this group of high school kids that had come into the mall, and then, I'm not saying he evaporated, but that was the last I saw him. <laughs> I was like, I started sobbing. And I'm saying, Rachel, we have food, we have food. And I'm ripping it open, and I'm eating, and she's eating, and Ben wakes up, and he's eating. And I get their coats on. I can't wait to go home and call Steve and tell him what happened. It was a miracle. Like, if that was not an angel, that was the most spirit-filled person I've ever met. <laughs> right? And, and by the time we got home, we'd eaten half a loaf. and we, we ate that whole two loaves that night. What, does God care that your kid doesn't have bread when you have food for them? Does he care? Does he care that it's taken a long time for your ship to come in? Does he care that you've put off buying that nice thing for yourself for years because you really want to follow him? Does he care about that? Does he care that your mom lives 4,000 miles away and you never see her? Does he care that someone died in your family? He sends an angel to bring you a loaf of bread. Or his spirit sends a really good man to bring you a loaf of bread. Elizabeth Barrett Browning says this. She's a, one of the finest poets of the Victorian era. Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest will sit around and pluck that blackberries. Some of us in this room are going to complete three or four years of education. We're going to solve all our problems. We're going to graduate as excellent students. After that, we will have a series of jobs in which we will do meaningful work. Some of us in this room are going to cross a threshold in the next two or three years. And when we leave, we will be so utterly transformed that whatever job we get won't even matter, because that's not what our life is about. 